This is brainwaves. This is brainwaves. This is brainwaves. My teacher wishes to brainwaves. Catch some brainwaves. This is a podcast. The podcast about teaching. I mean the best podcast. This is my favorite podcast. I love brainwaves. You're listening to brainwaves. Wait, so is it brainwaves podcast? The brainwave. Co- Wait, no. The brainwaves podcast. Brainwaves. Haha, whoever you are, wherever you are, whenever it is, you're catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the pristine and ever-sparkling St. Vrain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado. I'm Ben Kolb, and across the table is the co-hostess every child wants to be when they grow up. It's Becky Peters. Becky, what's going on? Not too much, Ben. I'm just wondering what I did in life to be lucky enough to be making a podcast that informs, inspires, and connects educators from around the country and to introduce listeners to the giants in education that we can all learn from. Well, I'd hardly call myself a giant, but I'm uh, very humbled by your claim there. Don't sell yourself short, man. But I really meant our rock star interviewers, our interviewees, sorry. Um, but you're pretty cool too. Uh, I guess last episode, we did start interviewing each other a little bit as well. So are you ready for your question today? I am. All right. Are you sure? It's a, it's a tough one. Okay. Give it to me. Okay. So we ask our guests to tell us a story about a time they failed. And I'm interested in what's the time that you failed and what you learn from it? Yes, I have so many failures that uh, this is going to be an extended pod just to talk through them. And hopefully you can help me unpack them. So <laughs> first I'm going to tell you a failure that I had when I was like 13 years old. So I was 13 years old, I didn't have a car, and I really wanted a job so I'd have some money. And I grew up in the Westminster Thornton area, and my house backed up to the North Glen Open Spaces. And there were always these Little League baseball games going on. Now, I never grew up playing baseball. In fact, it was my least favorite sport. It still is. But I thought, hey, that would be an awesome job to get. I'll just go work at a concession stand and make some money. I'm 13 years old, and I went inquiring about a job and the guy was like well we don't need anyone at the concession stand but we need umpires do you want to ump and i'm like how hard can it be (laughs) right sure and so i was like yeah i'd love to and so he gave me this like ginormous book that i had to learn all these rules for i had to go to this class and learn about it and everyone else in this class is saying stuff like well a split finger fastball and watch out for the corners of the box for the strike zone and it was all vocabulary I had absolutely no clue about. In but Little I was like, League? Yeah, it was awful. Huh. Um, so the best story from that whole time was my first game that I was umping behind the plate after somehow making it through this test and having no background knowledge about the sport. So I was umping a game of like seven-year-old boys and um, I'm behind the plate and the balls are coming super fast at you and it's pretty terrifying. So there's this kid up to bat and he had three balls, like, you know, one more ball and he was going to walk. At least I think that's how the rules work. <laughs> Not exactly sure. I was just an umpire. And um, so I'm standing behind the catcher and the ball is thrown and it is coming directly at my face. Like it's coming with some heat. And so to save myself, even though I have a mask on, I totally like duck out and do kind of like a Neo from the Matrix, like backbend, you know, to dodge it. And I yell, ball four, take your base. And the little kid turns around and he's like, but mister, I swung at that. <laughs> but like, since I was so bad and tried to dodge it, I didn't even see that it really was a strike. Um, 
and parents were yelling at me and all this kind of stuff. But I think the lesson I learned from that whole experience is that you always can teach yourself something and that so much of life is just having the confidence to do something. Um, and even just this podcast, like we're not podcasters and it's easy to have a kind of a, this idea that we can't do this, but you know, you can do anything if you have the confidence to take a shot at it. And we're going to have a lot of guests on who are going to ask our listeners to try stuff they've never done. And I hope that you go into it like little Ben did as an umpire. I can just picture cute little 13 year old Ben yep. trying to dodge balls a in, little yeah. league that was game. Awesome. It's but the whole purpose of this question was actually hopefully hearing our guests talk about a failure in the classroom. And I don't want to spare our listeners of experiencing that from me. So I'm going to tell you a story about my eighth period, second semester senior government class. So this was the last period of the day. They were second semester seniors, meaning they were months away from college. And the the kids walk in on the first day and it is all of the rowdiest football players you've ever met in your entire life. And I just like started sweating immediately. Like, how am I going to ever get them interested in government? And they're all best friends. And, you know, they were, they were done with school. And uh, I remember that we were, we were doing a presentation. It was like a Friday and they were doing presentations on federalists versus anti-federalists. And they were just super distracted. And I was thinking to myself, like, hey, how do I reach these kids? Um, and I really wanted to. And so at the time, this was around the time that the Harlem Shake was getting really popular. Oh, do you no, remember that? No, don't, don't go any further. I don't like, <laughs> do the Harlem Shake. And the beat drops will hopefully yeah. edit that in. Yeah. And so I thought to myself, oh, that's how I'm going to get these kids. Oh, wow. And so I was like, all right, guys, I know it's Friday. You got a game. If we are focused and we let these kids get up and present the last five minutes of class, we will do a federalist, anti-federalist Harlem shake. So basically like you walk around and then you have to have some article of clothing or dress or something that's going to make you seem like you are a federalist or anti-federalist. So I'm like, oh, this is great. They totally were in and focused and like excited about it. And it was the last five minutes and I'm like, all right, let's do this. So I set my phone up get the the song queued up on my speaker. And as soon as that beat drops, it was like the most pandemonium I've ever seen. <laughs> Kids up on top of the tables. And I'll even, yeah, I, it was ridiculous. And you I just remember yelling, get yeah. off the table. <laughs> and as I'm yelling that, the table is breaking at the hinges because like the entire football team was up on it. Yeah. And as that was happening, my department chair <gasps> and, and uh, principal were walking right next to my classroom. Oh, no. And it was just like definitely a learning experience that, uh, you want to try to reach out to their culture and what they know, but you also need to have some boundaries about not climbing on top of furniture. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a good one. Thanks. Yeah. Sounds yeah. Like- <laughs> Just being vulnerable there. <laughs> wow. Interesting. All, All right, right. My your turn. turn. You got to top that. I, I don't know if I can. Okay. Well, uh, I'll ask you about uh, an engaging lesson. That's a good one. So there's so many of these around the district, uh, and, and in my job, I'm lucky enough to be able to go around and, and see a lot of different classrooms and a lot of different lessons. It's hard not to talk about a million of those right now, but uh, I really think some of the most engaging lessons I've seen are those where Genius Hour or Design Challenges allow for students to design real solutions to real problems for real audiences, and I don't that does not have to happen outside of standards. So I'll give a couple examples. Um, one about Genius Hour, when I was still a little skeptical about this a few years ago, 
I went to a classroom that was implementing Genius Hour and they had just started and I met a third grade girl who was in the room kind of cutting up um, and designing clothes for a doll that she had with her. And I was like, okay, you know, that's something. There's math and planning and design, but maybe not a whole lot of substance there as far as like standards are concerned. But then she said to me, do you want to see the manual I made? And from behind her, she grabbed this huge stack of paper, probably like a whole ream thick of her written instructions, like sequences for other people to follow if they they wanted to make the same clothes for their dolls. And honestly, in that moment, my mind was blown. I mean, imagine how much writing she had to do, how much connection to other people. Uh, I just thought that was incredible. And it was something she was super passionate about. So she was just running with it. That's awesome. Um, And so that was a genius hour example. For design and design thinking, for those of you that know me, I um, I do this kind of stuff every day and I've seen amazing lessons with design and design thinking. Um, one I want to highlight, a couple years back, we did a design challenge for a children's book called No David. And I got a shout out to Helen Douglas, one of our STEM coordinators for this lesson. Love that book too. It's so good. It's so adorable. Good. Um, so we read through it and it's an awesome book where if you haven't seen it, this poor kid just does everything wrong. I mean, you can't imagine it. The book's called No David. It's my childhood. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like my son right now too. Um, so he just does everything wrong and every page his mom is screaming at him for something different. Like No David. So, you know, one page he's sitting in like a room with super messy toys everywhere. Another page he's running down the street naked, etc. So at Burlington Elementary, uh, like I said, a couple years back, we did a design challenge with all the students in the building to kind of teach them the mindsets and habits of design. Uh, we did a design challenge where we developed empathy for that main character and then thought of alternative explanations for why he was, you know, sitting in the middle of that messy room or whatever. And then the girls, uh, I'm sorry, then students in every level of that school came up with awesome ideas to help him solve one of those problems. So one girl, and I really want this, she prototyped a playroom that would have like magnets underneath the ground and, you know, kind of like floor heaters or something, just like pipes underneath. And then you would flip a switch in your playroom and the magnets would kind of course underneath the ground and pick up your toys with them as they went is that not the sickest idea so like a Roomba for yeah toys exactly under but uh, underneath unseen the Roomba yes. for toys it's That's an amazing. unseen Roomba for toys isn't that awesome um so and there were just so many ideas like that and again it's so incredible seeing how much time and effort they'll put into these things because they're original ideas that they've come up with for again authentic audiences and authentic problems um and I, I just love the idea of designing for main characters there's another book called The Loser that people read in fourth grade. Have you ever read it? <laughs> it's not about you. <laughs> it's about this poor kid who, like every social situation, he like throws up when he has to talk to people and things like that. I know, it's really sad. But so again, it's it's students being able to design for characters like that where they might get a little bit of fear or anxiety when they have to go talk to people uh, and they can design for different characters that have those issues and then maybe come away with solutions for their own lives. Really cool stuff. And I have tons of examples like that. If anybody wants more, you can email me. That's awesome, Becky. Thank you for sharing those. I think um, as a student who maybe was reluctant to read stories that I didn't like, the idea of being able to actually read a story for a character and for a purpose that you're going to design something for them would have really helped motivate me. So that's a great strategy, and I'm glad you shared that. So we're going to transition now to our guest for today, And I'm almost hyperventilating talking about our guest. He is Dr. Tony Wagner. And truly, if I had to boil down my change in education and how I taught, it all starts with this man. Dr. Tony Wagner is the author of several education books, including The Global Achievement Gap, which is the book that I read that changed it all for me. He then wrote Creating Innovators. He then spent some time in Finland exploring the Finnish system of education, made a bunch of YouTube videos about it. 
And now his movie, most likely to succeed, is airing in theaters all over the country, and he's currently working on a memoir. So Dr. Wagner is an expert when it comes to creating innovators in our kids. Dr. Wagner, who through this episode insisted on us calling him Tony, which was strange, is currently a senior research fellow with the Learning Policy Institute. And before that, he was an expert in residence at Harvard. Anytime you have expert and Harvard on your business card, I think you're doing something right. We're going to toss it over to him. I know we're going to learn lots. Dr. Wagner. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Doing really well. I'm here with Becky. Hi, Dr. Wagner. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Sure, but you have to call me Tony. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can bring myself to that. Uh, well, my well, guys, my well, lower back clearly says Dr. <laughs> Wagner. So. Oh, well. You 100% changed who I am as a teacher, and so uh, that's why I'm most excited, because you started my whole journey. So let's get, uh, get going right off the bat here that 10 years ago, Global Achievement Gap came out, and then Creating Innovators, and then you're directing movies. So what are you up to now? Writing a memoir. Nice. Oh. You know, I've, I'll start with a confession, which will explain why I'm writing a memoir. Uh, these are things very few people know, but I was asked not to come back to my middle school. I left high school in my fall of my senior year. I dropped out of college twice wow. before finally getting a master's and a doctorate from Harvard. So the question I'm trying to answer in this memoir is how does a kind of a screw up like me, who hated school, by the way, end up becoming an educator and writing a few books. Wow. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> I can't wait to, to write it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, could, so on that note then, could you kind of describe for us and our listeners how the role of the teacher has changed and kind of describe how, that, how you see it now as, as opposed to you know, when you first started off in education? Well, I think what is becoming more clear is that in a sense, a teacher has to be a scientist, hmm. uh, as well as someone who has a deep understanding or a deeper understanding of society than compared to when I started. By scientist, I mean, we have to better understand how learning happens. Yeah. We, have to, we have to know the research. And you know, Carol Dweck and others certainly have contributed enormously to that research since I started teaching back in the late 19th century. So, uh, that's supposed to be a joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. <laughs> I was a little worried when it was dead silent. Yeah. We were smiling to each yeah. other. How old is But quite seriously, we know so much more now about how children learn. And, and I think that, that changes the role of the teacher. Uh, in a sense, I, I think of great teachers today are performance coaches. Mm. They're really understanding uh, the, how children learn, but they're also understanding the aspirations and interests of individual kids. For me, the, the learning happens in, the, in a crucible where you mix in who kids are and how they learn, and it varies from kid to kid, the world from which students come and what they arrive with, and the world for which students must be prepared. <laughs> and, and I think in a sense that Back at, when I did start my teaching career in 1971, we were really not a, at all aware of the need to, to sort of take these two universes 
and to understand them and to put them together and to do really creative teaching. And I, I think I think that's true, and that's you know kind of what we're expecting more and more out of our teachers now, which I think is amazing. Do you have any practical tips or areas that, or sites or anything like that, that teachers can go to become better scientists about how students learn? Like what's, what are some of your go-to resources for that? You know, I, I don't know that I have any one or two. And I think there's a lot of professional development literature now. You know, I'm sure ASCD's publication, Ed Leadership, has had a million sort of feature articles on how kids learn. I'd probably start there because they're usually short articles written by practitioners. But I think the challenge is not to take on too much. Mm. You know, I think the school district, the school principal, or the teacher that has 10 priorities has none. Wow. You can't do 10 things well. And huh. I think the challenge for us as educators is to prioritize. We're not going to figure this out all at once. And the second point is don't do it alone. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you know the old saying, don't try this at home? Well, <laughs> the educators, don't do this alone. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that I think our profession is afflicted with the curse of isolation. We are arguably the most isolated profession in modern work life. We work alone all day, every day. And yet the talent challenges that I've described are challenges that we cannot try to solve by ourselves. It's simply, you know, it's too difficult. So we've got to, you know, at the very least pair up, buddy with somebody, who can, like the two of you now are interviewing me, ganging up on me, probably. <laughs> but, but what you're really, but you know, I think that isolation is the enemy of improvement, it is the enemy of innovation, it is the enemy of science. So if we talk about teachers, scientists, um, scientists don't work alone. They always work in collaboration. And innovation and improvement are driven by, I think, reciprocal relational accountability, teamwork. I love that. That quote, isolation is the enemy of improvement. It's super powerful. I want to put a hashtag on it. Um, I watched a bunch of your Finnish education system YouTube videos. When my wife walks yeah. down the stairs at night, I'm not talking to Jake from State Farm. I'm watching Tony Wagner on YouTube. Uh, but I think the Geico ads are way more entertaining, personally. They are. They are. Um, can you tell us... Uh, with that idea of collaboration and working as a team, what did you see in exploring how Finland does their education system? Well, a couple of things stand out as being really different. First of all, teacher preparation. Teachers have to get a real master's degree there, which requires them to do real research and to spend a year in a team of, with peers working with a master teacher. And I was so struck by that. I watched that where you had four or five uh, student, who, who were kind of student teachers working with one master teacher. And they would sit down and would collaboratively plan lessons. They would, then when one of them taught a lesson, all the rest of the folks were in the back of the room watching. And then they'd debrief. So teamwork was built in to uh, student teaching and, and to growth and development as a teacher. It was incredibly impressive. I've never seen anything like that in this country. But then secondly, and here's the kicker, and here's where we need educators to become advocates. The, the, <coughs> excuse me, the average teacher in Finland spends 600 hours a year in front of kids. The average teacher in the United States spends nearly double that, 1,100 wow. hours a year in Stop. front of kids. This wow. is one of Darling Hammond's research. Yeah. And so Whoa. what are teachers in Finland doing with the rest of their time? Well, they're collaborating. 
and they're learning from each other and they're visiting other schools and other classrooms, things we educators don't have time to do. Right? Oh my gosh. No, I have long lamented that really. I think there's gotta be a better way to structure it so that we're not putting all of the onus on teachers to be in the classroom 100% of the time and then you know staying up until 11 at night reading research. I used to only meet my classes three days a week. Huh. Uh, and two days a week was student independent study. That's awesome. And uh, it was structured. They were expected to do a certain amount of reading and writing. I was a high school English teacher. And so hmm. then I would use some of that time visit other classes, but I would also conference with every single student periodically, yes. every two weeks, every three weeks. And we'd use that time to go over writing and to talk about their independent study. And, and I've seen some of our teachers in St. Brain start to do that with genius hour, 20% time type right. projects. Right. Um, and that can really free up some time. That's right. So you said you started teaching in 1970. And, yep. and uh, one of the, the metaphors I love in the global achievement gap is talking about what if we could bring a car mechanic, a doctor, and a teacher from 30 years ago into a classroom today? Uh, and how the doctor couldn't walk into an operating room, a car mechanic couldn't even start a car, but would the kids notice a difference with a teacher from 30 years ago today? Uh, so my question is, why doesn't the teaching from 30 years ago work today? Well, we've been talking about it. Uh, because we have a deeper understanding of how kids learn, how they're motivated. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, we didn't have to pay as much attention to the problem of student motivation. Uh, they were, many came somewhat more motivated to school than they do now because they paid attention to adults and, and their parents in ways that they don't necessarily now. That the kids today are distracted by all, this, all the media, social media and and are more skeptical of adult authority than they were 30 years ago or more so that's one issue secondly the the world for which we are preparing our kids is way more complicated way more challenging and so we have to pay attention to academic content knowledge still that doesn't go away but we have to pay more attention to skills because we know knowledge is not enough. The world doesn't care how much our kids know. What the world cares about is what they can do with what they know. And then finally, we have to attend to motivation. And, and I think a lot, all of that is a different understanding of the profession. And of the three, I believe motivation matters most. Because yes. if you're self-motivated, you will continuously learn new skills and new content knowledge throughout your life. And I, I believe that's what the innovation era demands. Back then, you know, we were still on, at the twilight of the industrial economy. More and more people were talking about a knowledge economy. But now we've passed both of those eras. Now we are in the innovation era. And mm -hmm. it demands fundamentally different things of our kids and therefore of us. Yeah, and of our teachers. So it sounds to me like we're talking about, um, you know, the skills that we need to, to cultivate in our students to help them be prepared for the rest of their lives. You've called them seven survival skills. Um, we, we kind of know them, you know, in EduSpeak as 21st century skills. What's the right way to, to talk about these with students and with parents and with teachers now? That's a really good question. I, I think it begins with a, adult conversations about how the world has changed. I think we start with parents, we start with our peers. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance yet to screen the film Most Likely to Succeed in your district, but we made that film to provoke conversations about a changing world. Absolutely. And I think that first challenge is 
for us as adults to co-construct a deeper understanding of a changing world. That happened for me, and again, I stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, the global achievement gap didn't spring sort of whole out of my head. I read, because my wife told me to, <laughs> The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. Nice. And I said, oh my God, you know, this is a whole different view of the world that I previously didn't have, didn't understand. I wonder how this is affecting what our kids are going to need to know. Yeah. So I started, as you know, interviewing business leaders who were at the cutting edge of this flat world. And that's what gave rise to the global achievement gap. And so I think we have to do the same thing collectively together. We have to construct a, a deeper understanding of a changing world. And then when we try new things in, in, in classrooms, we have to explain it to our kids why we're doing this. I'll give an example. I was uh, in Hawaii a couple of weeks ago. I know, poor me. But uh, <laughs> I, I was working. I was working. Sure, sure. Uh, I was invited. I did a number of things with both public and charter and independent schools. But I was then at the, at the a guest of Punahou School where Obama went. Obama's kids went, excuse me. And then, I know, Obama went. Uh, I also taught at the school where Obama's kids went. That's my ah. Fusion. So at any rate, this is Punahou, where Obama was an alum, and a group of ninth grade teachers had decided to collaborate to only give a grade at the end of the semester. No interim grades and no pluses and minuses. Basically, it's my version of A, B, or incomplete. Nice. So they were struggling a bit with this, and kids were kind of pushing back and saying, why are you changing the rules? When no other teachers are doing it, why are you doing this? And they didn't have an answer. Hmm. They had not made the leap to, well, ask your parents, kids, when was the last time they got a grade? Right. Uh, and, oh, and by the way, would you like to fly with a C-minus airline pilot? Somebody's pretty good at takeoffs, not so good at landings? Yeah. Mm -hmm. no. the, the, the world out there only gives three grades. You're competent, or you're not, you don't have a job, or you're trying to get better fast. Or occasionally and rarely, you're excellent. Those are the only grades. There are no pluses and minuses out there in the great big world. Huh. Maybe you're incomplete. But my point being that when we make changes in our classroom, we have to connect it to students and their future. And we have to say, this is why we're doing this. Try it. We have to help them always understand the world for which they are, are trying to prepare. Hmm. Yeah, I remember being shocked when my first boss didn't tell me exactly what to write in my assignment notebook. Mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> you do a great job in the Global Achievement Gap talking about how the world and business changes. We're an innovator economy, but our federally mandated tests are still predominantly multiple choice. So how do you respond to a teacher who thinks that drill and kill still works best to prepare students for the, the tests? Well, again, it's a really important point, and I, I think our continued use of obsolete assessment systems is the biggest drag on innovation in education right now. Although, and this is a challenge to your state, up to seven states can apply for waivers from ESSA, a lot of the ESSA testing by developing their own formative assessments, hmm. their own performance-based assessments. New Hampshire is doing that, uh, but very, very few states are taking advantage of this. Back to your point, since you know your state may, may not do that anytime soon, we have to sit down together. This is what goes back to the problem of isolation. We have to sit down together 
and figure out, all right, what's the content our kids are really going to need for this test? Hmm. Let's break it out. Let's do, let's do an analysis of what kids have missed in the past. And let's not overcover it. We teachers are very cautious. We're risk averse. When we're faced with tests that we know are going to in some way reflect on us, we tend to over-prepare our kids, in my view. We yeah. tend to cover more stuff than we have to. So the challenge is to pare back that coverage and to make more time for what we know motivates our kids. Render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. <laughs> but by gosh, we've got to carve out more time for the learning that matters most for the kids. Yeah. And to that point, um, Tony, I, it, I had to hold myself back from calling you Dr. Wagner. Yeah, good job. <laughs> I'm doing my best. To that point, uh, I saw you speak, uh, I was lucky enough to see you speak a couple years ago at a, at a STEAM Fest here in Boulder County, uh, and you really spent a lot of time talking about R&D and the importance of R&D in education, and it kind of goes back to your discussion of teachers as scientists, um, but can you talk to our listeners a little bit about how important that is and, and you know, how important it is that we co-create with our students and spend time working on that innovation together? Well, we've been talking about this all, all, all those, during this conversation, I think. We don't have a playbook for how to teach 21st century skills, or how to motivate kids who don't come to us automatically motivated. There's no playbook for that. There's no textbook for that. We have to figure it out together. We have to work at trying to figure out what works. You know, and I actually believe we have to take the same approach with our kids. We have to help kids understand that learning is trial and error. Mm. You know, how do we learn to talk? How do we learn to walk? You know, what if we said, I'm sorry, kids, you, you are never going to learn to ride a bike because we know for sure you're going to fall and probably skin your knee. Learning is trial and error. That's one reason why I think grading and the F word deserve to be thrown out of school. Mm. We disin disincentive, we disincentivate trial and error in the classroom and in our own work. So the more we can say, uh, and by the way, I wouldn't even use the term error. If it is a team-based innovation and you've done the research and you've vetted your ideas with your peers, then what you're really doing is iterating. There is no such thing as failure when it's team-based and research-driven. You understand what I'm saying? That yes. Many teachers say, I don't want to try Genius Hour because I might fail. Yeah. Try your idea out on your peers, vet your ideas with your team, look at the research, look at what others have done, and then I guarantee you the first time you do it, it's not going to be perfect. Guaranteed. But it's going to be better than what kids had before. And you're going to iterate. You're going to learn through your experience to make it better. That's what we learned from the innovation way of working. It's rapid prototyping. It's going from 1.0 to 2.0 with continuous and rapid feedback. That's what R&D means in education. Oh, I love it. That's super powerful. Well, let's go back to your iterations. A uh, question we like to ask teachers would be, what is a failure? And we know we aren't looking at them as failures, but what is a, a failure you had as a teacher and what you learned from it and changed because of it? <laughs> oh my God. I doubt you ever failed. Oh my God. You know, I sometimes joke. Uh, that I want to do a recall notice on my first five years of students. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That would be awesome. Because I made lots of mistakes. I, I can tell you one that, that has always stayed with me. I was working in a school within a school with uh, in-school dropouts. Um, kids who, who really were totally unmotivated. We're at the margins. And 
my whole thesis and idea was if, if I could motivate them to work on anything related to reading and writing, then that was a win. Yep. So I had this one tenth grade girl and she was kind of a wreck and, you know, smoking a lot of marijuana and barely coming to school. And so I had this idea at conference with every kid once every couple of weeks. And so I asked them, okay, reading and writing. So she brought in little scraps of paper, right? Hang on, I gotta get rid of this. No yeah, problem. take it, no problem. And she would bring little scraps of paper because she was working on poems, right? So uh, we'd talk about them and scraps of paper became sometimes a complete poem. And we talk about, you know, the idea of maybe doing more than one draft. And we're talking now six months, nine months. Meanwhile, she's engaging a little more in school, not just with me. And then um, a year by goes by, a year and a half goes by, she becomes a very accomplished poet. I mean, really accomplished. Multiple drafts, nice. you know, a publication worthy poetry. And she's totally engaged. She's thinking of herself as a writer. Yeah. So then she goes to write an essay for college. And it's a total disaster. So what I had done, you know, we think about that equation, intrinsic motivation, the world from which students come and how they arrive to us and the world for which they have to be prepared. I had put all my chips, I'd paid all my attention to what engaged her and no attention at all to what she was going to need just to take the next step. That was a, that was a sad lesson to have learned because, you know, I could have saved us both a lot had I known that ahead. Wow. Yeah, that, if your biggest failure is someone getting really good at poetry, yeah. that makes me feel bad because I almost burnt down the sea wing of my high school. So, um, <laughs> oh pretty... my God. Don't you play with those test tubes, guy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, that, that's super powerful to think that it, it isn't just about engagement, right? That it can't just be an iMovie trailer that looks awesome. What do they actually need? And then tie in that engagement. But that's a great lesson. So what's so along that line then, what's the biggest piece of advice you wish somebody had given you during your first couple of years of teaching? Like can you speak now to our new teachers and, and Yeah, make time to go visit peers. Uh, another mistake I made in my career, and this was now six years in, and I really kind of figured out a methodology of conferencing, of writer's workshop, and I frankly I was, you know, Pretty daggone good English teacher, writer. I had students doing all the work. I had teams of students presenting books and so on. I, you know, was students' worker, teacher's coach, right out of Sizer's playbook before I'd ever read Sizer, before I think he'd ever written that book. In fact, I know it. So I was arrogant. I thought I there was only one right way to teach, and I was doing it. And I got feedback from a, an administrator, and I'm, I'm very lucky because she said, you know, you're you're kind of isolating yourself because I make pr pronouncements and so on in faculty meetings. So I spent the next year visiting all of my colleagues' classes with the aim of trying to find out what they were good at. Oh. And I'll never forget this. One of the elderly teachers there, English, this was an English department, was widely loved and, and you know, considered, you know, one of the best teachers in the school. And at that time, I also had that that reputation, one of the best teachers. And mine was all student-centered and conferencing and writer's workshop. He lectured in his <laughs> classes. And I couldn't believe it. And it made me, force me to say, okay, why is he so hmm. valued by students? And then I saw it. 
he loved his subject, which was Shakespeare, but even more, he loved sort of, he, he connected the kids. He wasn't, while he lectured, he wasn't condescending. He was mm. very wise and warm and gentle with students. And he created that culture in the classroom. So what that taught me is there is not any one best way to teach every kid the same. Right. And that in fact, different teachers have different talents, but that the one thing we all need to attend to is really creating a culture in the classroom of trust and respect. Without that, there is no learning. I don't care how you do it in terms of whether you're lecturing or, but he had done that. You know, I've seen other teachers who, you know, lecture and have a completely different culture because it's a, it's a lack of trust and a lack of respect. Right. And by the way, it extends to the adults. Yeah. Respect has to be among the adults in the school. Otherwise we won't try stuff. We're afraid we're going to get shot down or, or embarrassed or whatever. So trust and respect is foundational for adult learning, for adult teamwork, and for kid learning. I, remember, I don't remember if this was something I read of yours or in a previous discussion, but you were a pretty avid journaler. Um, is that something you still do? And can you talk about how it was important to you your first couple of years? Oh, boy. No, it's, it's great because it's another lesson I learned. You know, I was totally isolated teaching, and I had a master's from Harvard that was totally worthless, a master of arts in teaching. I hadn't learned anything about teaching. <laughs> Nothing. Zero. I had a master teacher who was hardly a master. He was a lousy teacher. Huh. So I started with, from scratch. And what I got in the habit of doing was, you know, stuffing a three-by-five card in my shirt pocket. And I'd race around during the week. But I'd write down a, a couple of words to just jog my memory of something I screwed up or a question that occurred to me or something I saw a student say or do. And every Saturday morning, I mean every Saturday morning, between 9 and 11, I didn't have to think about what I was going to do that Saturday. I'd take the three, five, three by five cards out of my pocket and I'd start journaling. And that was, to me, my professional development. Yeah. I posed questions to myself and also over time began to through writing, understand what was really working and why. So it, it was an extraordinarily important. And I would say that you're asking advice for teachers. The discipline of reflection for not just, for anybody, I think is essential to growth. And you could do it with walking. You could do it with yoga. You could do it with meditation. Mine was journaling. Uh, and I only know what I deeply know when I write which is why I can't stop writing books. Yeah. Well, I, th I think now we have a, a pretty big cohort of teachers who are reflecting on their practice through video and how easy that is now. And great. 20 years ago, that was almost impossible. But right. yeah, if you are a St. Vrain listener, make sure you hit someone up if you're interested in filming a lesson and reflecting on it, just having your own eyes on it. It's very, very powerful. I'm glad you point that out. I think that's great. I would only add that it's better to buddy up yeah. and create a, 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 like a, a set of norms for how to look at videos. I did this once with uh, teams of students, sorry, teams of teachers uh, in a school and we created, first we created norms. Uh, what, and the norm was the teacher whose video we're looking at gets first opportunity to comment on it. Mm -hmm. And the teacher, most importantly, let's start back a half a step. The teacher chose what he or she wanted a video as a problem of practice he or she was working on and wanted feedback on. 
could be how you start school. I'm sorry, how you start a class or how do you pose questions or what kinds of questions. So the teacher begins by introducing the video and saying, here's my problem of practice. And then the teacher will see the video again and they get first comment. Then when the rest of us who are audiences, the first thing we start with has to be warm feedback, something we thought was interesting, thoughtful, and not a lot, one or two things. Then cool feedback. And again, only one or two things. The, one of the biggest mistakes we make as teachers is to give kids too much feedback, too many things to work on all at once. Mm -hmm. You know, papers full of red ink. You have to prioritize. And it forces you to think about what's truly important here. And when we did the debrief, teachers said they loved it. And here's the important thing. We teachers, we don't want to be evaluated, but ask us if we ever taught a perfect lesson. We'll say, heck no, never, not once. Right. Then so the question becomes, do you want feedback on your lesson? And it's very different when you phrase it that way. Right. It becomes lesson study. And I learned that from a very important book called The Teaching Gap by Stigler and Hybert, which is about the evolution of lesson study in Japan and how it fundamentally changed the way they taught math. Huh. So uh, yes, all, I love videotaping lessons. I learned a ton. The first thing you need to understand when you videotape your lesson is you're gonna look 10 years older and 10 pounds heavier. <laughs> that, uh, it's unavoidable. Yeah. Right, then the thing is to really develop some peer norms and, and take the risk of looking at some videotapes of lessons together. Uh, and with the idea that you're not evaluating my teaching, you're not evaluating me, we're looking at my lesson and how it might be improved. Yeah, that totally goes back to the it science. Sounds like, it sounds like a subtle distinction uh, in terms of you know, grammar or you know, language, but it's really important. Yeah, it's huge. Do you know of any schools or models that are that are doing that really well? Like, um, you know, as far as the the time or the R and D or going to see each other or things like that. Think people that we can learn from that you know have processes, infrastructure in place that make that happen. Well, unfortunately, I have to point to the usual suspects. High tech. No, that's okay. Uh, you know, every class there is team taught. Almost every single class team taught. <laughs> And Larry Rosenstock, the founder of High Tech High, has told me you could take away all the other innovations that they have at High Tech High, but the, the team teaching is the one thing that he would never, ever give up because he thinks it's been transformative. Wow. So I visited High Tech High last, most recently, I think two years ago. And it was between semesters, it was their professional day. Now, you know, in, in most schools, what do you do on a professional day? Somebody comes in to talk at you. Right. Or you go to your own classroom and do your paperwork. No. Yeah. What these, this high school was doing, these team, teams of teachers in pairs were presenting their proposals for their projects, for their students, for the coming semester. Wow. Feedback from their peers. Oh, my gosh. And it was, it was extraordinary. I mean, that's really sort of teaching at the highest level, where we're really learning sort of how to, how to, in an open way to the whole faculty. Here, here's what we're thinking of working on. How can we make it better? And you're reflecting in front of other people. That's and it's almost like, yeah, like an art critique or something. I mean, artists do that with each other all the time in order That's to right. improve. That's right. Amazing.
yeah, I, I think we, we, I think we understand the value of that. I think we just all need to get better about uh, reflecting on it and being more open to that sort of formative feedback. And, and, you know, the more we do that with our students, the more we can do that with each other. Um, it sounds like the better off we'll be. And again, you make the critical distinction. You're not giving me feedback as a teacher. I, you know, you're giving my lesson feedback. That little bit of distance makes a critical difference. Hmm. That's good advice. Dr. Wagner, we hear a lot of negative. Uh, 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 I'm uh, sorry. Uh, oh, this hurts. <laughs> Tony. I just punched him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, we're going to do, you know, team-based work, peer work. The doctor thing just doesn't work. All right. Sounds good. That's uh, awesome. We hear a lot of negative with teachers and um, with the whole field of education. Has something happened recently that's made you smile uh, when it comes to teaching or education? I continue to be inspired by the teachers whom I meet, the educators whom I meet, who are asking the same kinds of questions. You guys are really great questions, willing to try new things. Teachers who may even be kind of late in their career and are continuing to learn and, and to ask themselves and each other the tough questions. And that's what I really most admire. You know, our, our educators who, who press themselves and who press each other with good hard questions, as you are with me today. So I'm going to ask you a hard question then. What do you, what's really intriguing to you lately or what are you learning about right now that you think is fascinating? Well, I spent a lot of time learning about innovation. What I'm really interested in now uh, is the challenge of better understanding the, the dispositions that matter most and how you teach them and how you assess them. Hmm. And so going back, another mistake I made, I've talked about the seven survival skills. But if you look at those, some of those are dispositions. Hmm. Not, they're not all skills. Not skills. Right. So I think that's really an important distinction. Huh. To be clear about skills, to be clear about dispositions. You know, it was uh, first Paul Tuff's book on brain research and, and the development of the prefrontal cortex that helped me understand the environmental factors that uh, impede learning, uh, notably stress poverty. Uh, but then, of course, the new work on grit and perseverance that Angela Duckworth and Carol Dweck and others have, have pioneered with. To me, those I, I didn't think about those things a decade ago. I mean, I knew some of it intuitively, but I think the real pioneering work we need to do in the next decade is figure out how to describe, teach, and assess not just the skills, but the dispositions that matter most. And then, so, so you, you mentioned innovation, how you, you think about that constantly. Do you have a working definition for yourself of what that means? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I, I, from, the, from the writing, researching and writing, creating innovators, I first of all learned there's two kinds of innovation. The first kind is about bringing new possibilities to life. And that's rare. You know, think of Steve Jobs. Right. That's a matter of an extraordinary talent converging at a particular time in history and sparks fly. You can't educate for that kind of capability and talent, I don't think. In fact, education often will get in the way. Hmm. Um, but so that's more a matter of nature than nurture. Mm -hmm. But the other definition of innovation that I learned was creative problem solving. Now in any domain, not just STEM, not just high tech, but creative problem solving in the third world when you're figuring out how to get cleaner water or, you know, uh, 
better ways of grinding grain. And so creative problem solving today, in my view, is the coin of Rome. Kids who graduate with creative problem solving skills and motivation, skills and dispositions, a disposition would be an example, would be a willingness to take initiative. That's not a skill, that's a disposition. Right. Huh. Uh, you know, a bias towards action. That's a disposition. Those are dispositions of innovators. I believe creative problem solving skills and dispositions can be taught and coached. Mm-hmm. And I think that's our challenge, is to ensure that every student graduates a better creative problem solver than when they started. That's awesome. I just add one little PS to that. Just keep in mind, we are born curious, creative, imaginative. Yes. That's the human DNA. The average five-year-old asks 100 questions a day. Hmm. Kid, you know, we are pre-wired to be creative problem solvers. You read Alison Gopnik, who's a, a, an infant, studies infants, and his work I admire greatly. Yes. Infants as philosophers, infants as scientists. We as infants start creating experiments to figure out how the world works. So that's what a five-year-old is. And a five-year-old is also an artist. Every kindergartner thinks of themselves as an artist. But then something happens. We call it school. Mm-hmm. The longer kids are in school, the fewer questions they ask, the less curious they become. And fewer and fewer think of themselves as artists. So we're taking a temperamental disposition and sadly, the story in, in too many schools is that disposition is like a spark that gradually grows fainter and fainter. Yeah, I mean, That's totally. So, so it's not about developing a growth mindset or developing dispositions. It's about designing a system that never lets those things go away. Yeah. I the, love one major exception, the one major exception is poverty. And that's the conversation we refuse to have in this country. Yes. We actually have more homeless children today than four years ago. Is that right? 22% childhood poverty rate. And, you know, the sad thing is everybody says, well, educators, you guys can fix that. Right, right. You know, we don't want to talk about poverty because that's hard. It's much easier to say, okay, teachers, you're accountable for this test result. And, of course, you can make all kids learn even though kids come with a destroyed prefrontal cortex from stress and poverty. Yep. So to me, that's, that's the one issue that, that is affecting all of us in the profession that our society refuses to deal with or even to acknowledge. Yeah. So I read your book 10 years ago, Global Achievement Gap, and I was doing some math in the car ride over, and I had probably over 1,000 students through my classroom who indirectly benefited from what you taught me Uh, and not a month goes by where a student won't reach out to me on Facebook and say hey Mr. Kolb you know when you had us create this well I just did this for work and it's like I know wait a minute my turn to ask a question back up yeah what was something in that book that made a difference because you were clearly already a very creative teacher right and it was the application of whatever it was you may have read that made the difference so what was it that you read that was important to you what do you remember now uh, I remember the metaphor of taking those three people from the past and bringing them to today. And then I just remember really being faced with the reality that kids are going into a different world. And what my lecturing off PowerPoint slides was giving them wasn't helping them be successful. So really, it was you opening my eyes to kids need a different set of skills and my class could be the vessel to get them there. 
Good for you. Good for you. Well, but the, you had the courage to act on that. Lots of people, you know, may read a book and not be able to act on what they've read. That's, that yeah. takes something else. That gets back to dispositions, doesn't it? Knowledge is not enough. Skills. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, ba yeah, back to my question. Uh, what have you heard a success story from a kid whose, whose teacher had read the book or whose teacher changed what they were doing um, that they can kind of attribute back to you? I more frequently get, I, get I, I do get a lot of emails telling a version of the story you just mentioned. Um, I also get a lot of comments from administrators who say, you know, it's, and mostly from people starting new schools, they say, you know, we're going to create a school that addresses the global achievement gap. We're going to create a school where we graduate kids as innovators. So it, I think from the feedback I've gotten, it has helped some people think about a complete redesign of both their classroom and their school. But I'll tell you some new feedback that's part of what's prompted me to write this memoir. And it's feedback I just never expected. Uh, I end creating innovators with a letter to young innovators, four page letter. And it was my wife's idea, never occurred to me to do it. I didn't, I didn't even know how I was gonna end the darn book. Yeah. Uh, but I did, I wrote a letter to young innovators and it was it, all the advice I wished I had gotten as a kid or an adolescent, but never did. That's awesome. So what's happening is a lot of teachers are assigning that letter to a young innovator for reading for students. So I'm getting letters and emails from middle school students, from high school students, and it's a, they're growing numbers of them. And, so, and they say to the effect, you know, until I read your letter, I didn't know who I was. Now I understand that I'm an innovator and I want to be an innovator. Thank you. I don't feel alone anymore. Thank you for your advice and suggestions. Oh, That's been one of the most heartening things Yeah, that's happened to me in recent years. That's awesome. That's huge. So, and I have a, I have a question for you too about you know, who you've become. I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned earlier that your master's degree might have been less than uh, desirable for you and, you know, you didn't learn a whole lot there. So what, what has made you so successful in the educational world? What do you do better than other people um, that makes you successful and how do you practice that? First of all, I think a lot of success is situational. Hmm. Um, you know, had my book come out 10 years earlier or 10 years later, nothing would have happened. Yeah. I mean, 10 years would have been too early. So it was, a, it was perhaps the right book at the right moment. If it had come out 10 years later, it would have been too late because there would have been 10 other books that were already might, way better than mine. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So some of it is situational. Um, some of it is temperament. You know, I've, 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 as my story about journaling probably suggests, I'm pretty per I persevere. Yeah. Um, some of it has been simply trying to untie the knot of why I hated school and how do I make it better for kids? Yeah. And some of it is growing up in the sixties, frankly, <laughs> uh, you know, I want the mix. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's, it's all of that that's in the crucible where I wanted to make a difference and yeah. it seemed like the best way to do that. Well, I think it's really heartening because I think a lot of people say, well, I, I can't get that degree or I can't go to school. For, I mean, it's, it really is about more than that. Um, and, you know, like you've been talking about this whole time, it's about collaboration and, uh, you know, believing in your own intuition and, and your own ideas. Um, and I think together we can make such amazing impact. I, it, it's just incredible to listen to you speak like that uh, and, and know that it's in ever, anybody's capacity to be able to do what you've done. 
I think that's really exciting. I think that's right. I think that we teachers are in a unique time in history where we all can do R&D, where we can all iterate and develop entirely new methodologies, just as a few teachers did, you know, at the turn of the, of the last century with John Dewey and mm. creating the lab school. Only now we can all do that together because we have access to this knowledge and to shared experience that was impossible at the, at the turn of the 20th century. There's a great, wonderful book called The Dewey Lab School. I think it's out of print. I bought it, remained it or something. But it really describes teachers doing exactly this kind of R&D. Only now, from social media, like what you're doing here with, in interviewing with me, there, there's so many opportunities to ask questions, to share at a far larger, uh, broader level than we could ever have done before. Yeah. Dr. Wagner, I mean, Tony. There sorry. you go again. All right, sorry. <laughs> We can't thank you enough for your time. I know it'll make a difference to have teachers hear from you, and we'll let you run on this question. Where can our listeners go to learn more from you? Well, as you probably know, I, I tweet interesting articles and research out when I find it at Dr. Tony Wagner. Absolutely. Uh, I also have a website, TonyWagner.com, where if I write a new article or I tend to post it, uh, those are the kind of the most recent places that um, I, I, I kind of hang around these days. Thank Tony. <laughs> I, it's really such an honor and such a pleasure to talk with you. I mean, you're, you're so collaborative and I, I just, I wish everybody was like this, that we could just, you know, call and talk and, and share ideas. Uh, so thank you for being so open to that and for sharing your expertise and your insights and passion with our, with our educators and students here. Thank, yeah. you, for your thank, you. thank you for your interest and thank you for your great questions. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was about the most fun I've ever had talking to somebody about educational policy and infrastructure. What an awesome guest. Good job, Ben. Um, and as you know, after each episode, we encourage our listeners to tweet their takeaway, their action steps, or their learning using the hashtag Rainwaves or tagging us at Rainwaves. So, Ben, what's your takeaway from our discussion with Dr. Ra I mean, with Tony? Yeah, I had, I had a very hard time calling him Tony, but I had that same problem when Dr. Dre told me just to call him Dre. It's like you always insert doctor. Had tons of takeaways from our conversation with Tony, and the biggest one for me was probably just all that he had to say about not letting teaching be such an isolated event. So I really want to encourage teachers in the buildings I'm in to allow each other in and to, ob to observe each other. I think that's a very powerful practice for teachers across the country. How about you, Becky? Close up shop. What'd you learn? Oh, it's it, kind of the same. I... What I really want to reflect more on is how we can make the most of our time as teachers and educators. Like if we can't really change the infrastructure behind the 1100 hours of contact time, I don't see that changing anytime soon, but how can we maximize the time we do have for discussions and new ideas? Like, like this podcast, for example, which I've said it before and I'll say it again, but I feel super to be super lucky to be working on this with you, Ben. Um, Thanks. But especially with all the technology in the classroom and opportunities to get mentors in and just different ways than we can structure class time, I really want to think more about how we might reimagine the way we're using our eight hours a day to give teachers more opportunities to help each other grow. Absolutely. Well, for Becky Peters, I am Ben Kolb. We had an awesome time learning with you. We hope you leave this episode feeling more informed, inspired, and connected. And we hope that you reach out to us. Tell us, how can we make this show better for you? What guests would you like to see on? What questions should we ask? What recurring segments should we add? 
hit us up on our blog at brainwaves.com. Follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves or at any time email us ben at brainwaves.com and becky at brainwaves.com. Thank you so much. Have a great day.